Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and forgotten taxpayers to the one and only Conservative Review podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, in the house for Friday. Yes, it is February 28th, but we are still stuck with the month of February for one more day this year. Um, Lots of people are asking me, hey, Daniel, uh, are you going to be at CPAC? Am I going to see you? Well, you guys know the answer already. I never go. I haven't gone in over a decade um, because it's not CPAC. It's RPAC. It's the Republican gathering. I mean, I'm not being cute here. It's it's a Republican slash you know, progressive libertarian gathering. It's the embodiment of all the problems we have with this phony party and phony movement, which is nothing but an appendix to the party, not independent of it, which is why we have all the problems we talk about every day. Now, today, I want to talk about a specific problem of our asinine response to the coronavirus. It's all about spending more money. Throwing more money at at agencies that already have record funding and not dealing with the policies. I'm going to talk about one of those policies and our medical supply chain and how Russia and uh, not Russia, but China and India are fleecing us and how mass immigration, mass migration, mass contract labor from these countries ties into the data transmission of all our data, all of our trade secrets and our medical supply chain overseas with with our very special guest. But I just want to first set the table on immigration and numbers and really just everything we're dealing with on every issue, certainly fiscal conservatism, too. And that is bold colors versus pale pastels. I'm thinking as I watch different just clips, I mean, I don't sit and watch it because I have better things to do and I'm busier with other uh, research, but just the things that come across my Twitter timeline from CPAC. And I'm thinking, man, that that embodies the pale pastels where the Overton window keeps moving. Oh, my gosh, Bernie, Bernie, we can't have socialism. And meanwhile, they accede to all of the socialism, anarchism minus two levels, which is ever increasingly moving to the left and they move to the left and and i thought to myself what a sorrowful thought that it was 45 years ago 45 years ago when reagan made that famous speech delivered the famous remarks we need a revitalized second party raising a banner of no pale pastels but bold colors which make it unmistakably clear where we stand on all the issues troubling the people that's really what this this show is all about in this audience. Let's have bold colors where we don't have to look at it like, like a, you know, a botched sex change operation. Was that a male or female? What, what am I looking at? Um, where we use the same language, the same ideas, the same focus, the same media sensational focus. We don't focus on the issues that trouble our people. Gangs, drugs, crime, immigration, the fiscal problems, the regulatory problems. The market distortions and healthcare. Where is our bold colored solutions? And that thought really dug at me when I when I saw something that um, a guy put out on Twitter and Mark Kerkorian of Center for Immigration Studies retweeted it. They evidently have a little survey there. I'm going to try to get my hands on some of the other questions, but it's like a little poll of the CPAC attend- and attendees. 
And the screenshot shotted one of the questions, when it comes to the issue of immigration, which priority is most important to you? Building the wall and securing the border, expanding, expanding legal immigration, but then they don't give an option for reducing legal immigration. Legalizing dreamers under the DACA program. And then look at this, arresting undocumented immigrants already in the U.S. illegally. So first of all, it's a little bit weird because, I mean, aside for the offensive things, it's just like they're false choices. I mean, some of them are, are bold choices, but some of them are, well, I want multiple. I mean, you want to build the wall, you want to arrest, you know, interior enforcement, and we don't want amnesty and we don't want expanding legal immigration. But notice they use the word undocumented immigrant and they never give the option of of reducing it. That's by design because the American Conservative Union believes in more and more and more. And I know I've done a lot of posts and shows and my book just quantifying the numbers are insane on every level. The sheer amount of immigration we have. That's what nobody talks about. Everything is good in the right amount and the right quality. But if you have too much too quickly and particularly from the third world and from countries that are dramatically different, you could have a little bit. But to have that much and that quickly, you don't get America anymore. Everyone knows that in every sense. And it becomes the biggest conduit. For other countries screwing with us, we're going to talk about that, not just on an individual level of not assimilating, but especially with the foreign contract labor of all these companies that can now engage in espionage and, and um trade secret threat that is what's happening with the mass 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 migration from china and and it's like there's no room in this massive tent they have trans conservatives and lesbian conservative everyone's conservative at cpac but there's no room for anyone who believes in in just taking a record high immigration level for 50 years that we've never done anything close to and reducing it for, for a period of time. I mean, I, there, there's no option. And the funny thing is, poll after poll after poll after poll shows that overwhelmingly people want it reduced. Even in California, we've published polls before showing that. Especially when you poll, when you tell people how much immigration we have, or you ask people, Harvard Harris does this every month, how many immigrants do you think we should bring in? And like the aggregate was like one, two, maybe 300,000. The average, if you would aggregate the, all the responses and take the median response, it would be somewhere around there. You tell people we have 1.1 million legal immigrants, 20% of which, by the way, wind up being illegal aliens finagling themselves into green cards. On top of God knows how many 15, 20 million illegal aliens we have in this country, several million at least of them criminal aliens. We have 1.3 million foreign students every year. We have all these people on long-term worker visas, like a million of them. Low-skilled, high-skilled, you name it. Over a dozen or so so-called humanitarian programs. And by the way, we'll talk about this at some point, but um, the Center for Immigration Studies put out a report even so remember how we talked about how this mislead there's this misleading notion that we're reducing refugees because there's about a dozen other humanitarian programs that are like it that are at record highs SIVs SJVs UACs asylum obviously um U visas you name it 
So the refugee proper program was reduced under Trump. But even under the reduced numbers, people forget that, oh, man, we only had 25,000 refugees last year. Again, you add the SIVs, you add all that. It's, it's not. It's much higher. The UACs, we had 70,000 just in one year. But even just that. That is the highest number by far for any country in the world in 2019. That's the joke. Even Germany was 9,000. Canada was the most, 14,000, but significantly less than us. It wasn't even close. Sweden was 5,000. And then the collection of all other countries, meaning if, if you take out the next four, Canada, Germany, Australia, and Sweden, and you take every other country in the world, took in 20,000, fewer than we did under the all oh, reduced migration of Trump. That just gives you a, a sense of how the Overton window over the last number of decades and the, our whole conception of how many people we bring in is just way off the equilibrium. It doesn't make any sense. No country does this anywhere close. And they think it's not enough. This is CPAC. And of course, there's no room at CPAC for Reagan's view on crime. Reagan's view on crime. I've heard from people who go on panels. They are, it's made very clear. You cannot be, I have this directly, by the way, for reducing immigration, you cannot be against criminal justice deform. This is conservatism. These are our bold colors. 45 years after Reagan. Well, I will tell you, if Reagan were alive today and would see how far backwards we'd slid back, his question of do we need a third party or a revitalized second party, that would go out the window. We have tried it again and again and again and again. It is irremediably broken. Mark my words, we will never succeed without a new party. For now, the best we can do is try to do, you know, influence and pressure the best we can within the Republican Party. But, you know, don't kid yourself there. So there's that. There's an inspector general report on DHS that talks, quantifies how many criminal aliens are being released, 56,000 been released, 17,000 of denied detainers, criminals from denied detainers remain in the country. Um, they talk about how many resources ICE has to expend to do at-large arrests rather than in a controlled environment. We have a case I'm going to report out on today in Chicago where they released someone who had a massive history, including, by the way, uh, inappropriately touching a woman they let him go, defy an ICE detainer, and a couple months later, this happened earlier this week, he's accused of pulling the pants down of a three-year-old girl, luring her into a bathroom, and trying to rape her. Three-year-old girl, God have mercy. Yet there's no sense of urgency to act on this. They're talking about sticking like must, like on this must-pass coronavirus bill, spending bill, like the FISA extension and this and that. How about an emergency to deal with the pandemic of other countries' sex offenders in this country? And there are many, tens of thousands. I could go on and on and on, but we're running out of time. I want to get to my guest. Friends, when you look to quantify just how much immigration we have, it, it truly is shocking at every level. And at some point, I think I'm just going to collate all my writings on this over the years and maybe put out 50 most shocking facts, just, just numbers-wise. It's, it's truly unbelievable. But I want to segue into our guest. Um, she was a really big hit last time, just a week ago. 
Hillary Gam, as many of you know, she has an organization, American Workers Coalition, that she started with two other mothers, just simply trying to protect the American worker and our sovereignty. She's the author of a terrific book, Millions Lost, The American Tech Crisis and the Roadmap to Change. You could get that on Amazon. But I just want to set the table for Hillary um, because she didn't hear the opening of the show. And just to really frame where we're headed when we talk about the cultural problems, particularly the espionage, the trade secret theft, the data transmission, and how that gets back to our vulnerabilities with things like the coronavirus. So back in the day, at the time of our founding, so obviously we, we had a very small um, level of immigration, really until the 1830s, the first wave. <clears throat> and all the immigrants we had were from similar European stock. But nonetheless, Theodore Sedgwick, during the debate on the 19, uh, 1790 naturalization bill, he said, quote, there's a concern that their sensations impregnated with prejudices of education acquired under monarchical and aristocratical governments may deprive them of that zest for pure republicanism, which is necessary in order to taste its beneficence with that gratitude, which we feel on the occasion. Madison at the time on that same day spoke about admitting only those who quote are attached to our country by its natural and political advantages. Jefferson wrote in the notes on the state of Virginia, he feared that we would, quote, bring with them the principles of the governments they leave imbibed in their early youth. These principles with their language, they will transmit to their children in proportion to their numbers. They will share with us the legislation. They will infuse into it their spirit, warp and bias its direction and render it a heterogeneous, incoherent, distracted mass. And I don't think they ever envisioned this sort of migration we have today at all when they said those words. And you look at any measure, the 68 million, langu- uh, 68 million people speaking foreign languages at home, according to the census, that's one in five people, a lot of states and counties, jurisdictions, it's, it's much more than that. Um, in California, most counties, it's 45%, 45% of all people. And nobody ever asked the question, is enough enough? I mean, as we noted, even so-called conservatives uh, the Republican Party, it's its like a no-fly zone. You, you're not allowed to talk about this. When is enough enough? And the thing is, when they talked about this, their concerns were more at a micro level, an individual level, where you know, we would have individuals with biases towards their home country. But what you have nowadays is this dynamic, particularly with contract labor, where you have foreign uh, brokers and and country and companies that are literally stewards or almost owned by China or India that are servicing this immigration pipeline. So at a at a at a micro level, at a geopolitical level, they're downright using people. Not everyone, but there are inevitably people, and we see this every day. With the just yesterday, there was a Chinese individual sentenced um, to stealing one billion in dollars worth of trade secrets. This happens every day. And there's just no regard for that sucking sound that we have no sovereignty, no control over our own destiny. Now, we spoke with Hillary a lot about the labor aspect of this. I want to speak a little bit about the public health problem, the national security aspect, the trade secret aspect, 
and how this ties into what Senator Josh Hawley is trying to push with keeping our medical supply chain in this country. With no further ado, it's an honor to bring Hillary back on the show just a week later. Hillary, you're you are a real hit. So we figured we'd bring you on twice in one month. Wow. Thank you, Daniel. And you're a real hit with all the Amworco folks. We really appreciate the time and your energy to talk about how legal immigration, <clears throat> excuse me, um, can sometimes hurt the United States or pretty much uh, many times hurt the United States. <clears throat> Sorry about sure. that. Sure. So, so I want to delve into that. And, and, and folks, you can go to amworkco.com, amworkco.com. Check out all their information. They are working to push back against legislation that is making this problem even worse rather than solving it. We're going to get to that a little later. But I do want to start off with the health aspects. Um, you guys talk about how our insurers are in store are storing American health data overseas, how there are no HIPAA problem complaints. There's no HIPAA restrictions on that most americans don't even realize this how does our discussion about basically giving over our tech and medical industries to foreign workers foreign contract companies how does that affect our response to the coronavirus oh, that's a great question so you know the coronavirus um basically magnifies to the american population and the world population the disadvantages to globalism versus kind of a more insular cu country, uh, both in terms of our ability to respond and also in our ability to innovate and to resolve issues, right, especially around uh, disease. So when we look at the coronavirus, right, Josh Hawley, you know, before the current administration, I don't think a lot of people realized all the risks that were inherent by United States and our democracy and our supply chain being so tied to China, a communist country that is somewhat secretive kind of behind this, you know, iron wall, right, that we're not really sure what's going on or how it happens or things are state-funded, lots of spying, and tons of intellectual property theft. So before the current administration, most Americans didn't realize the threats to our democracy um, and to our capitalist society from China or a country, you know, any, any kind of communist regime similar to China or, you know, large trading partner that was really unfair in terms of the trading. So what's good about the fact that we've had this kind of exposure of inadequacies and, and inequality in the relationship between the U.S. and China is that now that the coronavirus is here, People have heard about China, right? Uh, and although some people still maintain, and even some presidential candidates uh, still maintain today in 2020, that, you know, the U.S. is is best to be beholden or with these very tight ties to China. Um, you know, I have always been uh, a, very much the supporter of, you know, America first and not somebody who believes that those things are good for American citizens, for our democracy, or for capitalism. And through this coronavirus epidemic, um, we see that it's not good for our health as well. It's not good for the health and well-being of our citizens to have the kinds of ties and to have the kinds of dependencies and to have the kind of um, open transfer, not only of information, but of, of, of goods and people. It's not good for the U.S. and it's not good for our population and it's not good for our country. And, um, you know, we can illustrate that in several several ways. 
So I don't want to ramble on, but do you want me to talk a little bit about, I can talk a little bit about the data. I can talk a little bit about supply chain. Uh, yes, yes, both of those, specific, and, and specifically the supply chain as it relates to healthcare, why it puts us at risk when we have this epidemic with uh, coronavirus. Um, because I think what's important, Hillary, is that as always, the debate in Congress is always about money, how much money we're going to throw at agencies, which frankly are at record, record levels. I quantified that in an article yesterday, CDC, NIH, um, way over the Obama administration levels. And yet it's never enough. And then every time we have an emergency, then somehow the base funding gets lost and we need more. But no one discusses the policies behind this. So so what are some of those policies that will make us more secure um, in both, you know, preventing these viruses from entering the United States, but also in terms of inoculating ourselves and having access to the vital uh, vaccinations we need in case of a pandemic? Okay, great. So first thing, first thing I think that most people should understand is today the United States educates one million plus Chinese students. So we're educating an there's an unlimited number of Chinese students who can come to the U.S. and be educated here. And in the face of this uh, coronavirus, what that means is that there's one more than one million Chinese students who are on campuses across the U.S. with American children. Now, the coronavirus started after they went back to school for their, uh, you know, quote unquote, uh, holiday winter break. Um, but next year, when they come back to school in September, what are going to be the health ramifications for us having wow. one million plus Chinese students alongside our American children across these universities? Whoa. So, so, so right there, Hillary, I mean, you have a lot more to say, and I want you to hold that. I want to digest that. That's a big point you just made that nobody in Congress is making, not not a single person, because, of course, you know, it would touch a holy grail. Um DHS announced, as you, as you saw, that finally, and it was way too slow, they did shut off flights. And they said, we're only, we're basically just trying to evacuate, get out our, um, our LPRs, uh, our citizens there, our people, or, you know, Chinese nationals that have green cards here. But the or clause, the second part of that is a big deal, because... We have a heck of a lot of Chinese immigrants, and that includes even those that don't have green cards, um, the foreign students. So I think you're right. The presumption, and and I'm, I, I don't have this 100%, and, and let me know if you've seen this, but I'm pretty sure that if a Chinese student would want to go home, we would take them back now. Let's say they had to go home for whatever reason. We would not restrict that. I'm not sure what the policies are on that, actually. I, I'm not sure, Daniel. I think that would require some investigation, a phone call to DHS or USCIS to understand mm -hmm. what the protocols currently are for that. Um, but to magnify or to shine a spotlight on just one little example, right? One of the largest universities in the United States in terms of percentage of foreign students attending is New York University, smack dab in the middle of Manhattan. They educate over 13,000 students. Uh, I think their total number is around 50,000 students altogether. But they're educating 13,000 foreign students right now in Manhattan. And 
So when they come back, you know, I, we don't know if the coronavirus is going to be a virus that is sustainable over the summer months, right, when it gets warmer. I think there's some questions about that. Um, but just think about that. You know, you have one of the largest cities in the U.S. where people from Manhattan travel out uh, to, you know, New Jersey and Connecticut and New York State and Washington, D.C., and you have 13,000 international students who are going home for the summer. <laughs> it's going to be, you know, that's those kinds of things aren't being talked about in the media. And those are the things that should be concerning American citizens. When you open your gates to foreigners to travel in and out of the U.S. with, um, you know, basically no tra tracking whatsoever. I mean, they come in, they can live anywhere, they can do anything um, pretty much uh, within the confines of, of, you know, our legal system. And they're able to work, they're able to live, and and they're part of our society and they use our health facilities and, you know, they're on our campuses and our stores and our subways. Uh, and just in one little city, Manhattan, where there's millions of, uh, you know, New Yorkers, you have 13,000 foreign students just from this one school alone, just from NYU. So that kind of um, information, I think, is the kind of information American citizens should start to be concerned about. And, you know, ask the question, how is it to America's benefit? How is it to our country's benefit? How is it to our children's benefit to educate so many foreign students rather than American children? Why are we pushing American children out of our STEM programs across the U.S. and instead bringing in foreign students? Why are these nonprofit universities in the United States offering scholarships to foreign students in equal measure to American students? And why are the minimal number of slots at our best universities in the U.S. being given to foreign students rather than Americans? If, if, if these institutions of higher ed are going to take in hundreds of millions of dollars in research money uh, from these foreign countries like China, uh, which has been illustrated in, in the media as of late, um, and the tuition rates for American students don't change, uh, and those U.S. educational institutions don't have to pay taxes, uh, we're putting the American communities that support these U.S. universities in harm's way with the advent of something like a coronavirus and bringing in all these foreign students, um, subjecting the communities to the you know opportunity to potentially infect a community through this large student population of of um, those who might be carrying the virus next year. And there's no benefit to the U.S. I mean, the U.S. is getting no benefit um, from my perspective. I, so, so that's an example where I think we need to, as Americans, think about what is our education system for and what's immigration, uh, how is it best utilized um, to enable yep. the United States as a whole. And So that's question number one. At an immigration level, before we get to the supply chain, just nobody's asking about, you know, what is happening with the million or so Chinese students in this country? Um, you could say, I mean, we have a tremendous amount of green card holders, and certainly they, to a certain extent, go back and forth. But but the foreign students clearly, obviously, go back and forth in the summer, um, much more so than a green card holder. And are we just going to keep up business as usual? So, I mean, I mean, it makes no sense. We, we 
we have a tremendous amount of immigration from a place where there are a lot of suspicions as to how these viruses evolve there, what the Chinese government does in their laboratory laboratories, what they do, obviously, to combat it. Um, assuming they try to combat it, they're not forthcoming with us. And we're just going to continue having this seamless flow. So, yeah, they talked about that they finally did cut off. I think I don't think you could apply for a new visa from there. I would assume you can't now. I'll take that at face value. And they've shut off general travel. Um, but what if you're a Chinese student already here? They're going to shut off travel? I doubt it. Um, so, yeah, we will find out about that. Now let's move on to the next step. Okay, so then we bring it in from China. We bring in the virus through the mass migration that we don't want to talk about. Then we want to deal with the virus in terms of um, our response and vaccinations. So isn't it true that now most of the supply chain for those vaccines are in the very country that is infected? Right. I mean, I think that the the, the percentage, I believe, um, you probably saw the same one, is it's over 75% of the uh, antibiotics um, that are sold here and supplied here in the United States are from China. Um, the majority of the durables that we use in the medical field to take, like, acetaminophen, uh, you know, they're, they're sourced, you know, from China. Majority are sourced from China. And when we talk about, you know, innovation, when people looked at car manufacturing and they saw that when the car manufacturers were manufacturing outside the U.S., the U.S. wasn't just losing the ability to manufacture the cars and employ those working on the car uh, factories, uh, lines, right? They weren't just using those, losing those employees. They were also losing the ability to innovate. And the same is true here now where we talk about a vaccine or our response. If we don't continue to manufacture and be the leader in all of these critical medical supply chain items, right, from drugs to being able to innovate for, you know, a vaccine, then we're putting our entire nation at risk, right? We want to maintain the ability to produce all of these critical, uh, critical U.S. critical life um, components, right, to keep uh, Americans healthy and safe and thriving. And by outsourcing so much of it, you're putting our country at risk and you're putting our citizens at risk and therefore our democracy and capitalism. And so we want to be able to maintain the opportunity to innovate which means we need to employ our own American citizens. We need to teach them. We need to educate them. We need to train them. And we need American citizens working in these research labs across the U.S. We need American citizens given the tools so that they can innovate and they can bring the best vaccines uh, when things like this happen. So we need to be able to respond to anything that the world throws at us. Um, and it's very important, therefore, that we maintain that supply side and that we, we own some of that supply chain. Uh, and that's why I think, uh, you know, Senator Hawley's legislation is right on the money. And I think it would not have received the press or wouldn't have been uh, as well received as I think people are understanding that we're at risk when we don't, we, we can't produce aspirin, when we can't produce antibiotics, when we don't have doctors and researchers in our own labs who understand um, how to innovate and create and improve quality uh, when we're dependent on uh, foreign suppliers 
that sit behind a government iron wall that don't necessarily share, you know, their manufacturing process or, you know, their quality processes. Um, it puts all of us at risk. And I think that's one of the things that's so great about that uh, Senator Hawley created that legislation and, intru- and introduced it. So how does this tie back into the foreign labor issue and the whole pipeline we talked about last week? Um, how is that driving the outsourcing? I mean, seemingly people would think they're two different issues. We're importing a lot of foreign labor from China and India, and then we're having a lot of our vital um, goods being produced in China and India. How do the two relate? Okay, so basically what ha- it, it, it's very, very um, important for people to understand that when we begin to migrate jobs out of the U.S. through outsourcing, we're basically completely 100% displacing these American workforces with foreign workforces. But the first step of, of getting that done is not, you know, we think about it, it's not this lift and shift, right? How is it that people from India now produce or manufacture these drugs or people from India are the ones who are managing our health data? It's not that there was this lift and shift. It, it happens over time. So there's, you know, basically when you think about it, it's a multiple step process, okay? Um, so the first step in the process is that, we're educating foreigners before Americans, right? So we're giving them access and opportunity to our research and to our best-in-class um, information and, and the way that we get things done, right? And they're able to then replicate that in their home countries. The second thing we're doing is then we're, we're bringing them into our facilities across the U.S. So while they're students, they, they go into facilities as CPTs, uh, and that's the 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 work that's the work program I talked to you about last week, where the foreign students go in and they work, and many times they're displacing American researchers and labs at universities, or they're working um, when they graduate as OPTs. They're not paying taxes, but they're given access and opportunity to how our systems work, how our research works, and through H1Bs and L1s and H4EADs. These foreign workers are actively displacing American workers that are sitting in jobs today. So across the STEM spectrum, from nursing to doctor to, to doctors and nurses to um, artificial intelligence folks to people that are doing coding and database analytics, um, I mean architecture, you know, the full STEM spectrum. So when these individuals that are not U.S. citizens displace Americans in those roles. Americans are providing knowledge transfer. They are teaching this foreign mm. H-1B or L-1 their job, how they do their job. And you might ask, and people might ask, well, why are Americans doing that? Why are Americans teaching these foreign folks that come in? Why don't they just let them fail? And then these companies or these universities would just stop employing the foreigners because clearly they don't know how to do the job. Because when they come here, they're hampered by their, many times, their inability to speak English well. They're also hampered many times by their inability to understand how processes work in the U.S. And yet we have literally at this point millions and millions of American citizens who have had to train their foreign replacements. And the reason for that is that Americans are forced to train their foreign replacements. They are unable to secure their severance benefits many times. They are told that they must train their foreign replacements or they will not get their health benefits when they're laid off. 
And so American citizens are put in this position, almost having their, their employers holding a gun to their head, saying, you must train this foreigner. You must provide this knowledge transfer. You must tell them everything that you do. And so you hear the stories of American citizens who have these foreign workers who sit next to them day after day after day for weeks and sometimes months learning their job. And so when that happens, you have this foreign worker, maybe they're on an H-1B or an L-1 or an H-4EAD visa. They're displacing that American, and then they're able to transfer that knowledge back to their home country, whether it's mm -hmm. India or the Philippines or China. And then that foreign country then has the knowledge that was here in the U.S. and has the cheap labor and the capability to actually employ and take over the industry. And that's how, over time, there has been a complete lift and shift uh, of so many technology shops and data across the years over the past Lift and shift. I love that term. And, and Hillary, what you're saying might sound very simple to you, but this is novel to a lot of people. What you just explained, I mean, if we could have uh, just policymakers listen to those few minutes there, because, you know, I never even thought about thought about it that way until recently. That you know, a lot of people, and this is true of every public policy, they see the problem, but they don't see the time bomb that was set that created it. And then usually they propose some other stupid big government solution to deal with it. So Democrats, I mean, for years, were always complaining about outsourcing. I've always heard them complaining about that. And naturally, I'm a free market guy and I don't like government regulations. And to me, that you know, I believe there is an appropriate measure of, you know, some degree of having plants elsewhere if, if it works for you. But here's the deal. It's not free market that's driving it, if I understand what you're saying correctly. So first of all, there's two things. Number one, before we get to this, there's just vital things. I think yesterday we spoke about this. You, you gave a very good example of energy independence. You know, putting aside, we all believe in free markets, but then there are national security concerns. There's a countervailing issues that, I mean, I think free, I think trade is great, but you're not going to trade with the Taliban. You're not going to trade with Al Qaeda, right? Certain things overrule that. So energy, you got to have energy independence. So there's certain products, and we're saying this with the medical supply chain, several other things. You can't, I mean, you, you have to retain some sovereignty in America. Otherwise, forget about business in the bottom line. You just have a national security problem, public health problem on hand. But then there's another issue. What is driving this? So you're saying it's not like you have, a big car company, a big tech company. And they're like, hey, look at that yabba dabba doo land far flung. Let's just pick a phony country, Timbuktu somewhere. And let's go set up shop there and get a bunch of cheap labor. Well, how are you going to do that? How do they have the knowledge? How are they going to do it? So you're saying the, the market didn't build that. That was the government's anti-market going against the natural flow and equilibrium of the immigration you would have that our founders envisioned that our, our leaders up until 1965, and even including 1965, the way they sold the bill to us, they certainly didn't say they were doing this, understood that you'd have gradual immigration that would be to benefit America, they would stay here, they would become American, and it'd be 100% American. Not this massive contract labor. So they go take that information, then they go back to those countries that's how we've had the outsourcing. Did I get that right? 
Yeah, precisely. I think so. You hit on a couple things. Number one, I absolutely, you know, agree with you and, and spoke to you about that the other day. That where did the current Trump administration succeed, and why is it important that the U.S. is energy independent? Because then we're independent. We're not beholden to anybody. As a country, we can yep. we can just determine what our future is and achieve it without being dependent yep. on those that might choose to do us harm. Okay, so that's it's what- truly it's truly un- unbelievable, Hillary. If you look at we had almost a mini war with Iran and everyone was saying, oh, my gosh, that's it. Uh, you know, oil is going to spike because we choked off their market, plus just the instability of the low intensity conflict. And guess what? It went nowhere because we're just crushing the world market on energy. And what's great is that, you know, it's not only that we're energy independent because of, of fracking and oil production. We're also energy independent because, you know, solar energy has done so well. So I think the combination of understanding that we can improve our environment, improve our lives and increase our ability to be a sovereign country that um, is able to help others, but be, do it from a position of strength and do it from a position where we're able to make our own decisions. The same is now true for healthcare. We need to be able to operate from a position of strength. You know, I was speaking to someone yesterday whose family is from Poland, and his, he explained to me that, you know, his mother was very sick and he brought her here for medical treatment. Because in Poland, unless you're paying somebody under the table, you're not going to be able to get them an operation. And I've heard the same thing <clears throat> of people who are in Canada. And so although people talk about socialized medicine and the importance of having people covered um, and, and be, giving people access and opportunity to health care, um, they forget that in those markets, these other markets, markets where medicine is more socialized, the access and opportunity for regular citizens actually ends up being hampered. I mean, think about the repercussions of illegal immigration and legal immigration in the United States and how it taxes our healthcare system. If you have yeah. an elderly parent or an elderly relative and you bring them to a emergency room, in an area of the United States where it's majority um, of immigrants, they, even though they're, they've been living in the United States their whole lives, they're American citizens and they're taxpayers, they have to wait after the 35 illegal or legal immigrants that are in the waiting room that never paid one penny into the system, right? Um, and, and, and they're forced to, to wait and sometimes end up compromising their ability to get better and sometimes end up dying because they're not able to be seen fast enough because the, you know, emergency room is so flooded with people that don't necessarily even have health insurance. And people don't understand that's not necessarily equitable, right? And, and, and people say, but we need to help everybody. But when you think about that, it's like, so an American citizen who's in their 80s, who fought in the world wars, who has paid taxes their whole life, who's done everything right, who's been, you know, a model citizen, they should be pushed to the back of the line to get health care when they're most sick because they have to wait behind, you know, all of those in the waiting room um, because that's the way that we give uh, those who are, you know, in our country uh, either, you know, that aren't necessarily American citizens to, to treat them. I just, that's a situation where unless you're in it, you don't realize how inequitable it is and how unfair that is to American citizens. But at the same token, you know, we only have, you know, so, so much capacity in the United States, right? And we only have so much capacity in every way in the United States. And so, as you alluded to earlier, in previous generations, when immigrants came to the United States, our country took great pride in assimilation, meaning we didn't want 
such a large number of immigrants that come to the U.S. that those coming to the U.S. didn't adopt our ways, yeah. our American ways, our language, and our values. And today, when there's so many people coming from one or two countries, they don't necessarily, you know, assimilate to, to U.S. culture. They don't necessarily assimilate to U.S. values. And what happens over time is then the American values that so many of us hold so dear and take such pride in as American citizens, you know, dissipate and disappear. And that is evidence in every aspect, you know, of our, of our lives and our being. You know, people just don't understand uh, just the, the littlest things like holding a door open for somebody or they don't understand um, – you, they just don't understand things because they're not here from the United States. So they don't understand women should have an opportunity um, to be able to speak equally, you know, and because in their country, maybe they don't. And so then you're in a situation where, you know, you have people that are at disadvantage. Um, yep. Because yep. the, 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 the American values. The, the, the numbers. Right. It, it's, the numbers matter at some point because why should they assimilate? I mean, I'm just saying if you look at just take three countries. China, India, and Mexico. I mean, the numbers are so great that you could you could have it both ways. You could have your past community, and it, you know it's always harder to transition, but be in America, and you kind of get both. And I understand it. Um, we foster that with our you know at a governmental level, our immigration policies. And uh, it's funny, Nancy Pelosi actually said what you said um, when people were appalled by some of the anti-semitic innuendo from ilan omar uh you know she actually said well look you know you can't blame her that's how it was in somalia and you know people were really appalled by what pelosi said some of my colleagues and they were bashing her but i actually said i said she's actually right now it's lost on her that she proposes mass migration and she's part of the problem but she actually hit on the truth that yeah i mean we certainly don't want America to be like Somalia. And if you bring in that many that quickly and particularly concentrate in, in you know, a couple of neighborhoods in Minnesota, then, yeah, you're going to you're going to have that. And that's where Ilan Omer's values have come from, which are divorced even from previous Democrats. So um, I think that's very important what you're saying with with the values. But I do want to get back to the national security aspect and the trade secrets. I'm going to read to you a story and I want to get your comment if, if you've seen other similar cases, and if you've seen this from India as well. So this is from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution from a month ago. Coke trade secrets case highlights U.S.-China tension trade challenge. And they talk about this woman, Zirang uh, Yu, that she was about to get cut from um, Coca-Cola in Atlanta. And she gave herself a lucrative parting gift. You uploaded to her Google Drive account confidential documents detailing trade secrets from six Coke vendors worth more than $100 million, according to federal indictment and FBI agent's testimony. It wasn't Coke's secret formula, but prosecutors say the records helped you. Look at this. <clears throat> Win Chinese government funding to start a company making next generation can coatings in a beverage industry segment that's worth $3 billion a year back in her home country. Right. So exactly. So that happens across the board. So, you know, there is the same kind of situation where you had Duke, um, a Duke lab where, you know, the students, Chinese students took their research back to China to give, uh, you know, those kinds of intellectual property and 
um, proprietary research to the home government, their ability to replicate. And that happens across the board. Um, you know, there's a company in Massachusetts where the gentleman came in and sat down and was just downloading and downloading and downloading files to steal um, company secrets and intellectual property theft that was massive, where a company had uh, invested over years and years and years in, in the research and development and, and stolen in, in, you know, hours. Uh, by someone who just comes in and, and takes the files. And so it's a very real threat, right, where you're giving people access and opportunity to our uh, our research and uh, our process, and they take the information back, and, and then they're developing it and replicating it. Um, and, you know, it's basically stealing stealing our trade secrets. It's, it's a very big deal. And uh, Are you seeing this from India as well? Well, I know that there were quite a few articles um, for in India, where it had to do with, um, if I remember correctly, I, those articles, I haven't re read, read them in a while, to do with the creation of pharmaceuticals, where there was a lot of, uh, lot of reports where they're, you know, they're taking, um, but the difference, let me explain to you the difference between India and China. So in India, what happens is that American companies open up shop in India, which is very different than China. So so in, with China, it, they, they steal the secrets and then they develop the stuff in China and then their government and their country benefits behind their communist wall. India is a democracy and India celebrates free markets. So what India allows American companies to do, and which, which India uh, does very well, and that's the reason India has grown so much. And that's the reason that India has so much of our data and has taken, uh, basically taken over so many of our jobs is that what, what happens with India is the American companies can go open up shop there. So, you know, General Electric, you know, goes and opens up shop in India. So they'll, because they have cheaper labor, labor to manufacture, so they'll take their best scientists from the U.S., they'll put them as expats over in India for a while, train up that India staff, and then create the turbines in India. Uh, and that's true of any, the pharmaceuticals, you know, healthcare. Um, one of the biggest things that we didn't touch upon, right, is that American health insurance companies, um, most Americans don't realize this, American health insurance companies have all set up shop, for the most part, in India. So where somebody has insurance with United Healthcare or Pfizer or Cigna or Aetna or Anthem, thinking that their health data is being stored in the U.S., thinking that their health records are being maintained in the U.S. or thinking that their claims are being processed through the U.S., through people working in the U.S. the way it was 50 years ago. All of those records, all of that data, and all of those support staff in that whole healthcare industry for health insurance all sits abroad. They're all in foreign countries. And that has to do with the fact that the U.S., unlike China, unlike Australia, unlike the EU, and unlike India, has no data localization laws. So we don't, we don't put any restrictions on where the data flows. We let American data flow anywhere. So even though we have these super stringent HIPAA laws that structure how you can communicate about health records in the United States for citizens, those HIPAA laws don't necessarily translate when the data goes to these foreign countries, right? Because people that aren't American citizens are opening up uh, the records and can be do anything with them because they're not here in the United States. And so therefore they're not bound by our jurisdiction, right? When it comes to those HIPAA laws. 
But Americans don't know about that. So they don't talk about it. It's not in the news. But uh, that's it's not in the news and it's not at a CPAC uh, breakout panel, uh, this type of discussion either. And then that's the problem. I mean, it's really there is no representation for the American sovereign talking about all of the areas of concern related to sovereignty. I mean, that's a big deal. You're saying that all our data is, is over there. Um, and, and again, I, I do want to you know, you made the difference between India and China. So I do want to verify the, the, the threat of espionage and, and stealing trade secrets is just I mean, it's self-evident from China. But are we seeing the problems once the data is there, problems from Indian companies and the Indian government? Or, I mean, is that not yet a problem? I don't think I've seen anything from the Indian government, now. I think that mm -hmm. I think when it comes to India, that we see our knowledge transfer going to India. We see American companies like Google or Amazon or Microsoft or IBM. We see Accenture, which is, you know, out of Dublin. We also see our manufacturers. We see our grocery stores, you know, Kroger or whatever. They just open up shops in India, and they just have their, their they just are hiring people through these India companies. Um, so you can't really say it's trade secret. It's it's the same company, right? It's just they're manufacturing it somewhere else. Um, but because they're able to do that, uh, it makes it so that Americans are losing opportunities to be employed in all these sectors, uh, and America is losing the opportunity to innovate, and America is losing the opportunity to you know have a thriving middle class. And that has to do with the fact that there is a free flow of data leaving the U.S. There's no restrictions on the data whatsoever. So all of these data-dependent jobs in the digital age, mm. all these research jobs, uh, they all can go anywhere. I mean, there's there's no restrictions. Sure. I, I We're running out of time. I want to cover um, just a couple of other things. I want to get your comment on this in November, the Senate Homeland Security Subcommittee on Investigations bipartisan report and, and it's truly remarkable how they'll often realize the symptoms of a problem and and even democrats you'll get them to talk about it but of course they'll never talk about the 800 pound gorilla in the room causing it so they published a report warning and i found found this shocking i i didn't i don't even understand the math that there's ten thousand chinese nationals conducting research just in the department of energy's national labs and the report found that foreign-born researchers working for various U.S. scientific research agencies were being paid by China under this thousand talents plan that they have yeah, that the Tricoms run. Isn't that crazy? And, 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 and they concluded, I mean, again, this is not like, you know, you know, crazy, nut, right-wing, crazy racist like Daniel and Hillary. I mean, this was the bipartisan report with Port, Portman and Carper. Um, concluded that American taxpayer-funded research has contributed to China's global rise over the last 20 years. And then they also note that despite the Chinese government's open, I mean, they openly announced in 2008 its intent to recruit overseas researchers with access to advanced research and technology, what they're doing, the FBI did not make it a, a priority to monitor this until mid-2018 and at that point, we've already had such mass migration from there. We can't control it. Um, and it allowed China to go. Here's the words that the um, committee report uses from brain drain to brain gain. Yeah, incredible. 
Yeah, and I think that's why so many of us who have worked in STEM and have um, family who are in the sciences uh, at some of the best universities, Carnegie Mellon, MIT, Yale, or Harvard, or um, Caltech, uh, and you see, you know, and even our state universities, like University of Texas, all the all the all the state universities in the U.S. I mean, you just see that it's it's incredible, right? I mean, it's it's just incredible. As, as, I mean, that's a great thing. It wasn't it, far more than brain drain, and it just debilitates it debilitates our country. It makes it so that we are not in a position to compete globally, and we're not giving our youth the opportunity to learn, and we're not giving the opportunity to work, and we're not we're not pushing our country to achieve greater heights. We are substituting yep. American labor and American grown ingenuity and ability for foreign nationals. I mean, it, even, in, even at the government level, there is H-1Bs and L-1s and H-4 EADs working, you know, for the Department of Labor, Department of Education. I mean, it's, it's just insane, right? You would never think that our own federal government agencies would actually employ foreign workers. And, and Department of Energy Research Labs and and some of them are probably green card holders, but not all. I mean, what, and what, what they found was unbelievable. And again, this is getting back to um, uh, the coronavirus and stuff like that. So you have, let's say, the India problem and the China problem. The India problem is bad enough. OK, like you said, shafting the American worker, um, taking away American ingenuity, giving that brain gain to other countries. But then you have China, which is a belligerent, which is really our biggest threat asymmetrical warfare the brain gain is how they're going to do it by by hanging us with the rope we pay for and we go and we bring in you know the pipeline as you say starts with the the at at the college level uh you know a million foreign students from there about four hundred thousand each year we we bring in and then total over the four-year period i guess i guess it's about a million and then you know just the endless visas 70 to 80,000 green cards awarded to Chinese nationals a year. There's some Chinese that are just terrific people. Some are coming to even get away from the Chai Coms. But when you have that many, we're not even vetting it. Here's the quote from them. So they they isolated the uh, several agencies that they found were problematic. Like you said, working for the federal government. And they cited the State Department and the National Institutes of Health, the NIH, do not quote, systematically track visa applicants linked to China's talent recruitment plans. So it's not just that, you know, we're not tracking our data, we're letting it go to anyone and they go back home just in general. But we don't even have a way of vetting them to know that they're not direct Chinese agents under the Thousand Talents plan. Yeah, that's what's really incredible. Yeah. It, 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 tr- it truly is. So um, final thing. We're, yeah, but I just uh, want sure, to say yeah. one thing, Daniel. So there's a really big distinction, though. Just remember, you know, India is the world's largest democracy. And as much as so many American citizens have been supplanted by Indian labor, India immigrants from India that are American citizens are typically the most vocal um, in terms of wanting fair employment uh, for mm-hmm. for Americans. Um so, it's, you know, I just want to make sure that we remember that. I mean, India has done a lot of – is one of our best allies and so and one of our strongest allies. And, you know, they do enhance our medical and engineering and architectural industries. I think 
that's very, very different than China, which is a communist country and, and is really out to steal. I mean, I think India is a democracy uh, with over a billion people. I think they, they try to partner with the U.S. And I think that's why, and also because the, the language of India, many spoke English because it was an English colony. And I think that's why, you know, U.S. Uh, capitalists and, 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 and U.S., you know, big business, you know, looks to India to kind of grow. But I think what we need to look at moving forward is that we have an equitable situation where, you know, Americans are not being yeah. forsaken. And, you know, exactly. we, we, both India and America can thrive through partnership. But, you know, if India is going to keep their data local and not let it leave its country, then why are why isn't the U.S. following kind of the same you know rules and regulations? And so that's that's kind of where where we have to look at it. We want democracies to thrive and we want to partner with our allies and we want to have good trade relations with them. And we want people, the standard of living for people, you know, in all of these countries to improve. But we don't want to see that the middle class in India rises because the middle class in the U.S. is diminished. That's what we don't want to see. That's not equitable. Um, and so that's why it's really important moving forward that we do things a little more smartly um, and we don't create policies at the federal level that put American citizens at harm and put American citizens at a disadvantage for jobs and education. Exactly, exactly. I mean, a certain amount is always good. We always say that. And yes, you're right. Our experience from India has certainly been a lot better than, uh, you know, Somalia and some other places. Um, I actually have a chart up. We did an article a while back I could link to in show notes. I'm using Stephen Camerata's data from the census of um, poverty levels and welfare usage. And certainly from Indians, it's way down relative to almost every other country where we uh, take immigrants from. But again, you know, it's a question of, of how much. I mean, at this point, if we step on the gas pedal, then we're not doing them any favors because why take a country that has a lot of momentum, it's doing well, and just create a brain drain for them? And, and uh, you know, obviously it creates in, 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 um, inequities for Americans as well. But, you know, how much is too much? And that's I think num that's where numbers always matter. And, and, and obviously, China is just way, way out of bounds. What we're doing from there. I want to close with this as a segue to the final thing. S386, the, the India green card giveaway. Um, and that was a perfect we talked segue. about it last time. Yeah. And that was a perfect segue because you we talked, talked about, about it last right. time. It's like, that's why country caps are so important, because there's brilliant, capable people from all over the world. Right. They're from. All over the world, we want to bring in our best and brightest from every country across the globe and welcome them into the United States and help them thrive and become contributing members of society and bring them in and help them be successful. And you know, As Americans. As Americans and, and have them acclimate and assimilate to the American way of life. I mean, you know, we have immigrants from all over the world that become – you know, our staunchest supporters of, of, of democracy. So, so, so Hillary, I, I don't mean to cut you off. We're running out of time. Yeah. What, what, what some of our opponents will say, well, Daniel, you're getting what you want. You're right. We're not going to do the contract labor stuff where they're mercenaries for another country. No, let's, you know, we have all these Indians here. Uh, let's just, let's give them green cards and make them become Americans. Yeah. And it goes back to what you were saying before with the, the, the examples that you gave of the other locations 
in times and places where you can't reward the monopolies, the, the few companies and countries that are monopolizing America's immigration system. It's to the detriment of the United States. The United States is a melting pot. It prides itself in diversity. And S-386 offers everything but diversity. Um, and it seeks to do harm to, you know, American middle-class STEM educated labor. And for those reasons, it is not a good bill for the U.S. It is anti-diversity. It doesn't promote um, STEM, the STEM workforce in the United States. And it rewards those companies and countries that are monopolizing and profiting yep. off the, the hiring of yep. people at wages that are far less than American wages. And, and it, it will engender, as we see everywhere in immigration history, an even bigger pipeline of Indians. Remember, this is a country of a billion people um, to come and do the contract labor. And then they'll say, we need even more green cards. Rinse and repeat. The more immigration you have, the more you need because you just create a cultural and economic and labor gerrymander that it just relies on it. So then it's just, it's more and more and more. We're seeing the same thing from, I, I talk about this all the time with Mexico and Central America. Everyone's like, Daniel, I'll tell you why we have illegal immigration. If you want to solve that problem, we need more legal immigration. And I said, well, wait a minute. It doesn't make any sense. We've had illegal immigration from the very places and precisely over the period of time where we had the most and from where we had the most illegal immigration. There's one thing if we have, you know, a bunch of illegal immigrants from Iceland and we're like, well, we don't bring in a lot legally, so they come illegally. But no, I mean, it's from the very places and, and it's it's the opposite. The more you have, the more you supplant America and you recreate their environment here so they could have the best of both worlds not assimilate but enjoy america and they'll come so then you know if it's eventually capped they'll they'll have a legal immigration there's there's you know the more legal immigration you have the more they're going to want and then you know with mexico obviously it's contiguous so it's easier to come illegally with these others they use the um visa programs so i think that is the thing and folks mike lee is promising to bring this up request unanimous consent to pass this bill out of the Senate next week. So we got to really watch this very carefully. And Hillary, am I not correct that the administration, let's just say they certainly haven't opposed the bill? Well, what we, we hope happens is that everyone listening to your show has uh, spends a minute just calling their, their senators in their state and saying no to S-386, that we think it's bad for the country. Uh, and that people remember that, you know, as a country... Uh, in the light of the coronavirus, you know, our country thrives, uh, but we only have so much infrastructure. We only have so many hospital beds. Uh, we ha only have so many school rooms and we only have the, so many, so many folks and we can't put Americans out of work and on the dole with no hope for the future and push Americans down while giving those that aren't even American citizens, um, the opportunity to, to succeed and access an opportunity to jobs and education. And, and forego American citizens who have been here doing everything right, paying their taxes, um, being lawful citizens and lawful Americans. And so S-386 goes against the American way. Um, it is something that only helps and promotes big business and uh, big tech. It doesn't help the American middle class, and it is not something that will support diversity moving forward for our immigration system. And it is not, it is not good for our country. And it's not good for American middle class um, or working class folks because it will flood the market with uh, more and more immigrants um, from just 
one or two countries, I think, for the next decade. And so 190 countries across the globe will be unable to immigrate to the United States legally to work for the next 10 years. And I, I do think America benefits from the best and brightest from all the countries on the globe. And we want people to come to the United States and we want them to enjoy the benefits of being American citizens. Uh, but we need to do things the way that we've done things historically that has been the, to the benefit of the future of the United States um, and not yep. to the benefit of just one or two donors or the donor class or one or two companies yep. that are going to benefit from particular legislation. Yep. No contract labor, reduced numbers overall, and the reduced numbers we do bring in are a merit-based system where it's they're broadly well-qualified, certainly love America. Um, I would actually love to have that as the number one cri- criterion. You have them write essays of why they love America, but certainly, obviously, high-skilled as well. But high-skilled, not in terms of high-skilled contract labor, in terms of the ones we do bring in, which I do think needs to be reduced, will be Americans. And you come them in to be, be Americans. They're like anyone else. And then it's like Americans getting a job. It's um, they could work wherever they want. It's not like you're having visa pork to to shove to Microsoft or whatever. Um, they just come here like anyone else. That's how we've always had it. Um, we've actually been contract labor for much of our history for good reason. Um, and uh, we need to get back to those values. We're at a time that was Hillary Gam of American Workers Coalition, a- amworkerco.com. Pick up her book, Billions Lost at Amazon. We are way out of time. Terrific show as usual. Same time, same place next week. Enjoy your weekend. God bless you all. And thank you for listening.